from Michigan Radio. This is the It's Just Politics edition of Stateside. I'm Zoe Clark. A historic election in Michigan. Governor Gretchen Whitmer cruises to re-election. We will make Michigan a leader, a place where every person is respected and protected under the law, a place where women make their own decisions, a place that protects civil rights and workers' rights, and where there's a path for everyone. Voters enshrine abortion and voting rights into the state constitution. And for the first time in nearly 40 years, both chambers of the Michigan legislature, the state house and state Senate will be controlled by Democrats. Today, we will dissect what Tuesday's results mean for Michigan and the new future in Lansing. So let's start by talking to that new future directly and getting to know one of the most powerful people now in Michigan, Joe Tate. He was nominated by State House Democrats to be the next Speaker of the House. Representative Tate, welcome. Hi, Zoe. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you. I know you are busy, so we are catching you on the road. That's sort of some of the noise going on. But I have to say, congrats, Speaker Tate. How does that sound? Uh, it, it sounds great. We, we were very excited Wednesday morning after the election results, all of the election results came in. And we're excited to be in this position and actually get to work um, from what the Michigan voters expressed at the ballot box. Representative, I know there's so much excitement, but there's also a lot of pent up work for Democrats. 40 years since this party has been in power. Where do you even start? I think we we start with what we've been talking about. Uh, As you said, it's been almost 40 years. um, But even in the House, it's been uh, a dozen years since Democrats have had the majority. So everything that we've been talking about for the past 12 years uh, are things that we want to take and put into action. So when we talk about, you know, supporting uh, workers across the state of Michigan, the governor obviously talks a lot about the roads and improving our infrastructure. Um, We want to do that as well, too, with what the proposals uh, have done, you know, with enshrining abortion rights. We want to also make sure that we have old statutes such as the 1931 uh, abortion ban off our books. to ensure that we, we are making a statement that, um, you know, state government, that, that bodily autonomy is incredibly important to us, that workers are incredibly important to us, and having um, infrastructure and, and roads and, and water infrastructure um, upgraded uh, is important. That is a a long list, and I have to say that within Lansing circles, folks are also talking about right to work, a prevailing wage. How do you now, as the new speaker, determine what's going to happen first, and then the list of things you want to get done after that? Because my guess is there's a a lot of folks lined up, all with their own wish lists. Absolutely, and it and it starts you know with um, with my colleagues, with my Democratic colleagues in in the House. You know, they were independently elected. Um, they have uh, their priorities. So coming together with our uh, collective vision and identifying, you know, what's going to be uh, going first. And that's also going to be that's also going to mean coordinating, obviously, with our, our new uh, uh, Senate majority elect, Brinks, uh, obviously with the governor as well, too. Um, 
what are we going to be able to do together? Because it's, it's, it's going to be a team effort uh, at the end of the day. So I think starting with that collective vision and where we're going to prioritize is going to be important. But we want to make sure that we are, we, we are going to make sure that we're going to keep our promises from what we said on the campaign trail. And uh, for us in the House, the past dozen years. So you mentioned, of course, Senator Winnie Brinks. She was also nominated, voted yesterday to be the leader of the Senate Democrats, the majority leader of the Senate Democrats. You mentioned Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer. There is a whole other group, uh, Republicans in Lansing. I'm curious how you're thinking about how you will work with Republicans in the future. Absolutely. And, you know, my time in the legislature, I know my focus, one of my priorities has always been um, reaching across the aisle, uh, finding, being able to um, establish that consensus building. And that's going to continue. Uh, that, that's something that I am uh, looking forward to doing and working in a bipartisan fashion. Uh, but that's certainly not going to, for us, I think, take priority over what our constituents want us to do. It's always going to be top of mind, and we always want to do that at the end of the day. Uh, but we certainly won't be shy with continuance of voice and now put into action with gavels in our hands the values that we've been talking about and the priorities we've been talking about uh, to get things done. Representative, Michigan still has a lot of money in the budget, a, a lot of that from uh, federal dollars, some six billion dollars. What should we be watching for uh, about how Democrats might prioritize uh, this money and and spending in the new term? Absolutely. That's a great question. I think for us, we still want to identify, you know, those those areas that we can invest in that will be transformational. Uh, We we saw that in, um, you know, the historic funding for for schools, child care, uh, the infrastructure funding, we did a, a, a huge supplemental for infrastructure funding, in particular water infrastructure, earlier this year. I think it points us in the right direction, but I think there are more opportunities for us to do that. And also there are other items that, you know, that, that's, that come up that we've, we've done some things in, like housing. I mean, we know that that's a, a huge piece of the puzzle here, um, you know, making sure that uh, Michigan residents do have that access to uh, attainable housing uh, across the state of Michigan. Um, not only that, but then also jobs. We, we, we saw uh, significant investments across the board uh, there in jobs across the state. Uh, I think that's something that we, we must uh, continue as, as we go along, making sure, too, that these dollars are going to transform the state in a positive fashion. Representative, as we mentioned, it's been a long while since Democrats controlled all of Lansing. It's been more recent memory, though, since there has been a Democratic speaker. I guess I'm curious who you're turning to for institutional knowledge as you take on this huge job in Lansing. Absolutely. That's a great question, Zoe. I mean, I first and foremost, um, we have a governor that, that spent time in the legislature, uh, both in the House and the Senate. Uh, so definitely uh, leaning on um, her uh, expertise and in, in, in having conversations uh, with her um, and knowing that, you know, we have obviously an incredible partner 
with her. Uh, also, uh, our current uh, leadership now. Um, so, Leader Lisinski, uh, Donna Lisinski has done a phenomenal job. She helped us get here. Obviously, she was, you know, we were in the minority all of this time, but, you know, she positioned us to be successful. So, also leaning on her. And then looking back at other um, uh, former elected legislators as well, too, you know, that includes, I, I know I'm going to miss a lot of people, uh, but one that comes to mind is a fellow Detroiter is Tommy Stallworth. Sure. Um, you know, he has a wealth of experience as well, too. But not only them, but those are the ones that, that definitely come to mind. Uh, there's certainly no shortage, um, but we certainly will be reaching out and, and, and pulling that uh, expertise because, as you said, it's been 12 years, so we need to ensure that we have uh, those members that served here a part of this process. Representative, I, I want to talk about representation. You are the first black speaker of the House in Michigan, or you will be the first black speaker of the House. But there are a lot of concerns about a new lack of representation of black representatives and senators because of redistricting. Are you concerned about the lack of black lawmakers in Lansing? You know, with the independent, as you mentioned, with the Independent Redistricting Commission, they created more partisan fair seats, the seats that are more, more fair for, for Democrats. And we saw that once we had uh, these seats in play, our message would resonate and we would be successful uh, in, in flipping uh, the House. But it, it, it does. I think it concerns me, too. We, we are, as a party, um, very diverse. And we want to, want to make sure that that diversity is reflected in uh, the members that we represent. So that's always going to be top of mind for me. I mean, I'm coming with my experiences uh, as, as, a, as a black male, as, as a Detroiter. Um, I think that's something that is going to be so important. Uh, and, and not only that share the experience, but the experiences uh, of others uh, in the caucus. So we will continue to keep an eye on it, um, but that's always something that we want to to ensure that we are having um, diverse voices in the caucus, not only for this session, but as we move forward uh, in, in future sessions. Joe Tate, nominated yesterday by State House Democrats to be Michigan's next Speaker of the House. Representative Tate, thanks so much for your time. I know you got a lot of work ahead of you. Thank you, Zoe. I appreciate it. We made it, y'all. Election 2022 is in the books, at least mostly here in Michigan. Voters made their voices heard. Governor Gretchen Whitmer, Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson, and Attorney General Dana Nessel all cruised to re-election. The state House and state Senate in Democratic hands for the first time in nearly four decades. Three proposals that will fundamentally change the state of Michigan, including abortion and voting rights, all approved by Michigan voters. So how did this all happen? What does it mean looking forward? Joining us to answer those questions and much more are Rick Pluta, co-host of It's Just Politics and senior capital correspondent for the Michigan Public Radio Network. Hello, Rick. Hi, Zoe. And the one and only Emily Lawler, politics editor at the Detroit Free Press, is here. Hi, Emily. Hi, thanks for having me. So, Emily, just like pull back. What happened? What do we know? What does it all mean? 
Yeah, I mean, what happened was a really, really good night for Democrats, as you mentioned, the best night for Democrats in the last uh, 40 years, because legislative control has just been out of reach for Democrats for so long, um, partially based on how districts are drawn, partially based on some national trends, I think. But, um, you know, in a year when really the headwinds were against the Democrats, right, they were working against having an unpopular president in the White House, Um and uh, that sort of conventional wisdom makes it harder for, for that party. But they were able to pull it out um, and pull through and get all three top, retain all three top offices, which was a huge sweep, of course, in 2018, um, and then get both houses of the state legislature, which is just uh, unprecedented in my lifetime, certainly, um, and a total paradigm shift for me, because I started covering politics in 2011, when Republicans had just hit, taken over the House. And of course, all three of those legs of the stool were controlled by Republicans. They ran the show. Mm-hmm. Let's see. Candidates count, incumbency helps, and uh, the United States Supreme Court made an unreported uh, in-kind contribution to the Michigan Democratic Party and Governor Gretchen Whitmer in this cycle. Because abortion. Because abortion was, even though the polls seemed to suggest that uh, that issue was fading and people were more interested in the economy, that we saw really wasn't a, a one or the other, that uh, people weren't necessarily holding Gretchen Whitmer responsible, you know, at least altogether for the state of the economy. And abortion as an issue that people passionately cared about just never, ever went away. And, and, and she effectively capitalized on that. Emily, what do we know about who turned out to vote? Uh, a lot of people. So uh, we know that it was uh, more than four, I think 4.75-ish million turned out. So that's huge. Um, we also know that nearly half of those turned out in the form of absentee ballots. Um, that's going to be a huge shift for Michigan because Michigan was... Um, until we passed a ballot measure in 2018, we didn't have no reason absentee voting. Of course, the pandemic played into the last presidential cycle. But this is not, you know, the pandemic is not what it was in 2020, certainly. And also, um, you know, I think this is just sort of reflective of a permanent shift in voting behavior. And Rick, I mean, one of the things I think that a lot of folks are looking at is, you know, permanent shift in behavior, but also that, that again, we keep saying this and can't say it enough, that three dramatic ballot proposals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we saw a uh, turnout with lines uh, mm-hmm. uh, around the block at, at universities like MSU and U of M students turning yeah. out. Yeah, I was going to say that, that the lines were long. And you look at the margins in Kalamazoo, for example, which has Kalamazoo College and Western Michigan University, 62% for uh, Gretchen Whitmer. You know, even in Kent County, which has Grand Valley uh, State University, 54 percent. That, you know, I mean, that's a pretty good number for uh, Gretchen Whitmer in a county like Kent. Emily, I want to go back to um, Team Whitmer uh, and and all of this kind of, I don't know, is it fire? Is it smoke? Is it just noise? But boy, oh boy, is uh, this governor getting a lot of national attention after this win. Absolutely. And she had a lot of national attention before this win, frankly, with the COVID pandemic um, and her handling of that. She really rose to national prominence. And that's one of the things that helped her raise so much money and have have such a big war chest, uh, which honestly, um, you know, I think scared people off. We saw um, a Republican primary full of political newcomers. I think that 
people who had been in politics for a while, um, you know, might have looked at that number and uh, found it pretty intimidating. So she she really amped her fundraising up. And, you know, nationally, in terms of what next, I think sort of the world, the political world is Gretchen Whitmer's <laughs> oyster. <laughs> I have a hard time uh, seeing her have anything but a federal future, but I'm not sure that'll come in the next um, two years. I sort of see her doing something further down the road. If she wants it. Yeah, this and I, I guess that leads nicely into this was kind of a year of the woman, you know, in Michigan that you look at all of the executive jobs going for the first time. Well, I mean, being reelected for the first time to um, to female candidates that, you know, I mean, women are running Michigan right now. And then also, I mean, look at some of the other heroes out there. I'm thinking particularly of uh, Mallory McMorrow, who's, you know, also another national cult figure because of uh, her prominence in this cycle and not to mention her prolific fundraising. Emily, let's talk a little bit about the messaging, um, particularly from some of these folks like Mallory McMurrow from uh, Gretchen Whitmer that really seem to, again, drive turnout that did, again, come back to fundamental rights of women. Yeah, I mean, I guess first off, I'd start off by saying, you know, if I were Senate Democrats, I might be sending uh, Lana Tice a fruit basket or something because her comments, uh, her fundraising email that um, called McMurrow a groomer is what gave McMurrow the platform to hit back and come up with this message of um, hate won't win. And that's something that's really resonated, not just in Michigan, but nationally. And it let her raise enough money to be able to help out her friends in the Senate Democratic Caucus. And um, I think that really was money that they needed and was money that um, you know, potentially made a pretty big difference going into the cycle. And I also think that um, in terms of messaging, you know, if 2018 was uh, fix the damn roads for Gretchen Whitmer, um, this year was fight like hell to protect abortion rights. And she really just kept hammering that home over and over. Um, you know, the Democrats got to define Tudor Dixon, who was not running advertisements and didn't have the money or the infrastructure to get up on the air um, right after the primary. And they spent months defining her as someone who was not going to protect your abortion rights. Um, and I think that ultimately that was pretty harmful for Dixon. Yeah, just so many unforced errors on the part of Republicans. And, um, you know, like Emily, uh, Lana Tice, who's a conservative state senator from uh, Brighton, you know, calling, uh, you know, Democrats groomers and things like that. And and people just, you know, wouldn't stand for it, that it was just a bridge too far. And I can only imagine that uh, today she's really wishing that uh, she either hadn't said some of the things that she said or at least uh, uh, said them differently. Well, let's talk a little bit about this new balance of power in Lansing. Um, you guys are talking about uh, Senate Democrats who just years ago had the tiniest little minority Minority who now are going to have power. We we talked earlier in this hour with the new who will be Speaker of the House, Joe Tate. Um, Rick, I'm curious in your mind, what are the things that we are going to be seeing in the early new year when Democrats have this trifecta? Well, I mean, I guess just to set the stage, one of the things that they're going to have to do is to decide how far they want to go and how fast. That uh, it sounds like there's a lot of sentiment right now toward repealing the right to work law, um, you know, really focusing on some uh, union rights uh, issues in the legislature. There will be a discussion on, you know, these majorities are are not large majorities. And how much are they 
they going to focus on getting big stuff done while they know they're holding the gavels versus, you know, maybe trying to take it a little easy and not jeopardize incumbents who are now in swing seats? Emily, what are you hearing about about the new normal in Lansing in 2023? I think they're still sussing it out. Um, right. You know, as Rick, as Rick said, I think uh, there's a decision to be made on whether they want to get the stuff that, that, you know, the Democratic priorities that have been building up for the last 40 years um, crank, cranked out at the beginning of the term, or if they want to, um, you know, pursue some more moderate objectives. And, you know, a lot of that pent up frustration, obviously, like, you know, Rick mentioned right to work. Yes, that was a huge, a huge loss for the Democrats in 2012 and a huge victory for Republicans. I'm just not sure that it really has the relevance as an issue in today's labor market um, and also in the much rosier picture for unions today, um, despite right to work um, that it had 10, 10 or 12 years ago. So, you know, some of those issues, I think Democrats are really going to have to sit back and prioritize. And I think that's something that certainly they'll do over the next couple months. And I wouldn't be surprised if we see something pretty cohesive come out in January. Mm -hmm. I think there's an emotional attractiveness to uh, right to work, though, because that was signed by Governor Rick Snyder, who campaigned on and said for years that right to work was not on his agenda, not on his agenda, not on his agenda. I mean, you know, and and in fairness, it was the DeVos's and the um, Speaker of the House, Jace Bolger, who really forced the issue. But Rick Snyder didn't do you know, anything to really stand in the way of it. And a lot of Democrats felt betrayed and I think have been waiting for an opportunity like this to uh, just show them what it feels like. I want to stay in Lansing for another minute. And Emily, something we were actually you and I just talking about yesterday, which is infrastructure. And I'm not talking about the roads. I am talking fundamentally about who is actually going to help run Lansing, right? Because yes, like lawmakers, they're going to be in charge and the governor. But with that comes staffing. And it has been years and years and years since there have been that many Democratic staffers to actually run the Capitol. And you said something really interesting yesterday, this idea that we could see a lot of young folks coming to Lansing and helping to kind of run the state in some respects for the first time. Yeah, absolutely. There are going to be a lot of big opportunities for people who are new to politics or new-ish to politics. Um, I think that, you know, one one reality is that when you're in the minority, you have um, fewer staff and not just like, I'm not just saying, you know, if every lawmaker gets a couple staffers, you have fewer lawmakers. I'm saying your central staff is a lot smaller. Um, you know, the majority not only um, has their policy and constituent relations operations, with the min- which the minority does as well, but is basically in charge of staffing up the whole infrastructure behind, um, you know, like the House and Senate business office and things like that. So it really gets uh, gets into some some pretty staff heavy territory. And I'm kind of excited because I remember in 2010, um, you know, Republicans had their big sweep and that was sort of the um, Tea Party era, but they brought in all these fresh faces around the Capitol. They took over the House um, and it was really sort of a, a wave of talent that defined how the Capitol culture ran for, years. Um, you know, a few years in there. And I just think that we could see a, a wave of new young talent on the Democratic side that, again, can sort of give the Capitol culture a reset, which frankly, I think it needs after the past few years. Mm-hmm. Although and, um, I think that there are going to be staffers who maybe you know served in, for a succession of representatives from a particular district, obviously ones who've been Democrats for a while, and who will you know move on to central staff. And there's just a lot of really 
basic advice, you know, that people coming in won't know. I mean, one that comes to mind is uh, there was a bill where the um, legislators were wondering how it might be interpreted by courts. And so one lawmaker proposed that when a bill was voted out of committee, that it be voted out with a memorandum explaining what the legislative intent was. And it was a staffer who stood up and said, you know, representative, we call that a bill. <laughs> yeah. And one other thing that I, I wonder if it's going to stay structurally is sort of the super committee structure that the House has set up mm-hmm. in recent years. Um, there's been some frustration about that, I think, from from members of both parties. Um, it is sort of like an extra layer that that didn't exist previously and doesn't exist in the Senate. Um, I'm curious if that stays. I want to turn to Michigan's congressional delegation because there's some new faces and a lot of that having to do with redistricting. Emily, which races uh, should we be paying most attention to? And by races, really, I guess I should say, which new Congress folks should we be paying the most attention to? I got to say, on November 7th, if you had told me that the James Marlinga race would be the last race to be called in the state of Michigan um, on the congressional level, I would have laughed at you. Um, I thought that Barrett Slotkin in the seventh, and I thought that um, the Shulton Gibbs in the third were far more competitive and far more um, hard fought, frankly, in terms of ad spending on both sides um, and fundraising on both sides and national groups coming in. Um, And so the fact that James uh, ran so closely in that district, I think means Democrats have to put up a a really strong fight there, Um, you know, a cycle from now. And I think that James is going to um, face some some realities with that um, going into Congress as well in terms of um, what kind of agenda he pursues. And, you know, I think he's going to have to be maybe much more moderate of a congressman than you would expect out of Macomb County. But Macomb County is a weird one, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it uh, goes for Trump, but it's gone for Whitmer twice um, by a pretty big margin this cycle. Um, and I think uh, John James obviously has a lot of appeal. He was probably the biggest Republican winner on the ticket, um, at least in partisan contests. I guess the other one would be Republican-nominated Supreme Court Justice incumbent uh, Brian Zara. But he's the biggest partisan office winner on the ticket, and he doesn't have a lot of people behind him um, in terms of down ballot. So I, I think you know there's a lot of pressure on, on him in that district, I think, going for Republicans. And I think it's also worth saying, first of all, you know, Macomb, you never fail to fascinate. Um, (laughs) But also, I mean, John James is a bright spot on an otherwise pretty dismal year for uh, Michigan Republicans, which means that, yes, he's got to be careful, but that also means that he's an up-and-comer who's going to be uh, looked upon as uh, maybe someone to follow, especially as the Republican Party deals with the reality that it has to diversify. Well, yeah, John James has been really the, the closest thing that Republicans have to a celebrity in Michigan for you know, two or three cycles now. Um, and and they need a farm team. They need a, a crew of people who are going to excite um, people on the base coming up behind him. And I'm not sure I see that at this point. Well, in the, the final only minute that we have, because this has just flown by, I do want to talk about representation, though. And I was talking with, uh, you know, this, the new Speaker of the House in the new year, Joe Tate, about this fact that because of redistricting, we are seeing fewer black representatives. And Emily, for the first time in decades, there is not going to be a black representing representative representing Detroit in this new term in Congress. 
Yeah, and I think that uh, people are worried about that. I think they should be worried about that. Um, there's no replacement for direct representation, um, you know, especially for the largest community in the state and the largest majority Black um, city in the nation. Um, and I think that at some point that's going to come home to roost or Democrats will um, address it in some fashion. Sure. I mean, uh, uh, it's both an optical issue, but also a practical one that are African-American voters in Detroit really going to feel like they're invested in their government and that their government actually represents them? That's Rick Pluta, co-host of It's Just Politics and senior capital correspondent for the Michigan Public Radio Network, and Emily Lawler, politics editor at the Detroit Free Press. Um, I want to say thanks to you both, not just for your time today and all of the incredible work, though, that you both did for the state of Michigan covering these elections, bringing us all much-needed fact-based information for the past months and months. Thank you so much. Thank you, and back at you. Hey, thanks. Agreed. (laughs) Still to come, for years and years, Republicans have run the show in Lansing, at least when it comes to the legislature. But with losses across the board this week, the GOP in Michigan goes back to the wilderness. Will this election cycle mean introspection for the party or doubling down on far-right issues and candidates? We are going to be joined by two folks who have spent a lot of time, maybe too much time to be healthy, uh, thinking about this issue. That is coming up next. You are listening to the It's Just Politics edition of Stateside from Michigan Radio. It was a bad week for the Michigan Republican Party, no two ways about it. Aside from not winning the governor, attorney general, or secretary of state's office, the GOP lost complete control of both the state house and state senate. It is a fundamental shift in power in Michigan, something that we have not seen for nearly four decades. And it has resulted in inter-party finger-pointing. We will get to that in a few minutes. So will this lost election actually serve as a wake-up call for Michigan Republicans? Can they reconcile their divided party struggling just as they are nationally with this Trump wing versus a group of GOP voters who just feel like they don't actually recognize their own party anymore? We are joined by two really smart brains who've been thinking a lot about this question and much, much more about the future of the Republican Party. Jason Rowe is the former executive director of the Michigan Republican Party. He's worked on Republican presidential campaigns for years, including that of Marco Rubio, Mitt Romney, and one George W. Bush. He is now principal at Rowe Strategic. Hey, Jason. Good morning. Or afternoon. What is it? There is no time in election, post-election season. Um, Tim Alberta is also here. He is staff writer at The Atlantic and author of American Carnage on the front lines of the Republican Civil War and the rise of President Trump. He might know Republicans better than they actually know themselves. Hi, Tim. Isn't that a scary thought? Hi, Zoe. Hmm. So, Tim, I want to start with you and something that you actually said here on Stateside several months ago. You talked about being worried about threats to democracy from the right as elections officials and offices and other elected officials were being overrun by this Trumponian electoral deniers. Did your feelings change about those concerns at all this week? Yeah, a little bit. You know, um, I think what we saw all around the country, really with 
the only notable potential exception in the Arizona gubernatorial race where we're still waiting for, for some results there. And I think that Carrie Lake, the Republican, has a very good chance to ultimately be the winner of that race. And of course, she's been one of the most prominent and, and outspoken conspiracy theorists running in this cycle. Aside from that one case, almost all of these Republican statewide candidates for governor, for attorney general, for secretary of state who were running their campaigns built upon this foundation of lies about the 2020 campaign having been stolen from Trump, they all lost. And not only did they all lose, but they all conceded. Uh, And that was unexpected, frankly. And so uh, to answer your question, yes, I think if the concern was that there could be some sort of um, you know, uh, lethal cancer to democracy that was spreading and this election would show just how rapidly it had spread, I think perhaps now we take a step back and think, huh, th- there's still a sickness here, but it's maybe a sickness that the body just sort of adjusts to and that we live with because some of these folks will be running again and some of them will win and there is still a problem here. But I think the scale of the problem and the urgency of the problem is significantly diminished from what we might have feared. Did the fever break, Jason? Well, I, I take a little bit of a different take than, than Tim's. I think the the histrionics going into the election, particularly from the national media about democracy being on the ballot, um, consumed them probably more than it did the electorate. I don't think you can ignore uh, how some of the issues, whether it's January 6 or, you know, the election denialism of 2020, um, you know, I, I would get calls from uh, reporters like right after the election on Wednesday, I got a call from a national reporter asking how come when Trump said that there was something going on at Huntington Place, formerly the TCF Center, uh, and he demanded that everyone get down there protest, and you protest, know, stop protest. the steal or whatever mm-hmm. it is, uh, how come nothing happened? And here's why, because for all the histrionics and fear that was being pushed about uh, election denialism in the 2022 election, what ended up happening is the least sexiest the least sexy job in politics, which is election day poll watching and poll working, in which we've always been doing this. It's just no one ever wanted to volunteer to participate. Now both parties are flush with activists that are now getting trained and showing up at polling locations. You have clerks and those that administrate elections working with the political parties, and you have all the eyes of the journalists on these places, particularly high-profile ones. And so when Trump did that, and there's actually people there watching a transparent system that they understand, which I don't think they understood in 2022, I think, or 2020, I think one of the things that happened at TCF Center is you had election watchers who didn't know what they were seeing and election workers that didn't know how to explain what those folks were seeing. And I think the confusion led to a lot of the, uh, the craziness that, that emerged there. Now we got people that go in knowing the process. And with all these eyeballs, we came through and there was no controversy anywhere. And we're not even celebrating it. For all the buildup, for what was going to happen for these Republicans getting so engaged in election day operations, Nothing happened and there's no celebration. And I think we should be looking at what just happened and say, hey, things settled down. We're in a good place. Maybe the transparency, the attention to how elections are run is a good thing. Tim, was it too much uh, histrionics or was it kind of an okay amount considering that January 6th literally was an attack on democracy? 
Yeah, I, I don't I don't view it as histrionics. I, I think particularly when you had individuals like uh, Doug Mastriano, for example, the gubernatorial nominee for the Republican Party in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, who essentially said, and not with much of a wink and a nod, when he won the nomination, that he would now be in a position to prevent a Democrat from winning that state's electoral votes, even if a Democrat won that state's electoral votes. And that's just one example of many, Zoe. So I don't think that it is histrionics. I think that what we can all agree on is at this point, the outcome vis-a-vis the election deniers who were running uh, and some of the rhetoric that they were deploying to rally their base and to raise money and to gain a foothold uh, with Republicans during this campaign. I think where it was a few months ago when the fever really was peaking, it has come down significantly since. And I do think that Jason's right that part of this is that a lot of ordinary citizens who got fed a lot of uh, bad information in 2020, they got off the sidelines, they did get engaged, they went down to watch this for themselves, and what they saw was paint drying. They saw what election administration looks like. They saw a lot of their fellow citizens, good people, who are just there trying to do the job of counting votes. And ultimately, particularly, I would add, when the margins are as significant as they were, that led to a, a, a pretty... A pretty uh, you know, a a pretty dull result at the end of the day. Now, I I say that about the margin because let's be clear, if Matt DiPerno Mm -hmm. is losing by a percentage point instead of by eight and a half percentage points, then I think we're probably having a different conversation right now. And that was going to be my exact question. Was the fact that this was a wave and not a red wave, but a blue wave, at least in Michigan, did that kind of inoculate the fact that we could have seen something very different? And the fact that we saw concessions, at least from two of the candidates, we still, as of this hour, have not seen a concession from Christina Caramo, the secretary of state candidate. Would it have been different had the results been closer? Yeah, I don't think you can ignore how that may have affected the co- the, the, the situation. And, you know, we're just talking about Michigan, obviously. Yeah. But around the country, I'm sure there were some marginal races and outcomes that were, con- you know, controversial or didn't go the way a, a MAGA candidate wanted. But I've heard of no real contesting of any election anywhere. And I think, it, like I said, I think it becomes harder when you have that many eyeballs on the process. And we didn't have that two years ago. So last night we saw kind of, I, I think it's fair to say, an implosion of the state uh, party. Tudor Dixon, uh, of course, the Republican candidate for governor, and party heads clashed on Twitter over who is to blame for this week's election losses. Um Jason, were you surprised to see this play out in such a public and ugly way? No, not at all. Um, Listen, we just got our tails handed to us. Four years ago, Republicans controlled every single thing in this state, all the constitutional offices, majority of the delegation, the House, the Senate, the Supreme Court. Uh, Oakland County, the second largest county in the state, the largest Republican county in the state. We had a Republican county executive, a Republican board of commissioners. Um, We lost everything in four years, and there's going to be recriminations and, uh, you know, naval naval gazing and soul searching on where we go from this. But, you know, when these things happen, uh, narratives start to form on who's to blame. And so, frankly, if I were in the state party's position, I would have put out a memo 
characterizing the situation from from that vantage point. I've read it. I've reread it. Uh, I don't see anything in there that's inaccurate. I think it's a pretty sober assessment of what happened. I think the Dixon campaign may be taking it personally. I don't think the tone of it was, frankly, directed at them. I think it was just kind of a sober assessment of what happened, what transpired, and where the the weaknesses are uh, in our way that we approach that campaign. And well, I, I, as a Republican operative, I don't want to pour salt in the wounds, but for folks who haven't read the memo, why don't you give us some few details about what exactly it said yeah. and what went wrong? It, it said what we all know is that, that Tudor struggled to raise money throughout the primary. And, and let's face it, I think her path to victory with Perry Johnson and, and James Craig on the ballot was non-existent. And when they got knocked off and then some support from, you know, some pretty significant places. She was places. an accidental candidate. Yeah, the DeVos family got behind her. Michigan Right to Life got behind her. The Michigan Chamber. I mean, those are the three most important constituencies in well, a Republican primary. Well, the Michigan Chamber, what, three days before the election? They got on the board. Uh, you know, Trump did the same. Uh, he, he didn't before come in much sooner. Yeah. Um, and... Um, uh, you made me lose my train of thought on, uh, on this. Uh, but, you know, she came out weak. She didn't have any money. She didn't have any infrastructure. And, and that's not her fault. She didn't have the resources to build the campaign infrastructure. And then what ended up happening is, uh, you know, $25 million in advertising, branding her on the no exceptions issue before before anything started to happen on the other side. So from the beginning of August all the way through September, it was $25 million of nonstop ads. And then finally in October, things start to materialize on her behalf, but it was too little too late. And so I think there's a lot of blame to go around. And I think the memo was pretty sober in its assessment. Tim, there's been a lot of talk uh, over the past, uh, since Tuesday, right, that that next day quarterbacking, that these are just bad candidates, you know, that, that Trump helped to choose bad candidates that couldn't win. But one thing that I think then gets lost is like issues <laughs> and the fact that abortion in Michigan was on the ballot uh, and I think drove a lot of young voters in particular out to go vote. I'm curious how much of what we saw in Michigan had to do you know, with the fact that there were bad candidates versus the fact that maybe the Republican Party isn't in step, at least vis-a-vis abortion rights, which, again, a huge constitutional question on the Michigan ballot. Yeah. So nationally and in Michigan, there seems to be this almost binary debate. You know, why did Democrats have such a good election night when all of the fundamentals in this election were working against them? Is it because of the abortion issue or is it because Republicans nominated a bunch of bad candidates? And the answer is yes. Right. It is both. Uh, they're not a, mutually exclusive. They're not mutually exclusive. And in fact, they very much work together. Jason was just talking about the campaign of Tudor Dixon for governor. Tudor Dixon happened to sort of step into the eye of a perfect storm here where there was a ballot initiative statewide on the question of enshrining abortion rights into the state constitution. And she happened to also hold simultaneously a view on abortion that is way out of the political mainstream. Those two things worked together in tandem. You mentioned uh, sort of Trump selecting candidates who lost. That happened all across the country. But Trump also inspired candidates who lost. So, you know, Christina Caramo is a Trump-inspired candidate. Matt DiPerno for attorney general is a Trump-inspired candidate. The mini-MAGA 
sort of phenomenon that we saw throughout this campaign of people trying to do the Trump thing without Trump's platform, without Trump's humor, without Trump's sort of twisted charisma. It doesn't work, right? It's never worked. It's never worked once. And Trump himself has never been a majority candidate, which we might want to get into later. But the point is, yes, you had Republican candidates running statewide in Michigan and elsewhere who not only imploded and sabotaged their own campaigns because of their sort of extremist views, but they sabotaged the entire Republican ticket going down. You know, Jason was running the one of the most competitive congressional races in the country. The most expensive. The most expensive race in the country. And there's only so much that his candidate can do when Republicans at the top of the ticket, the three statewide candidates are all bad candidates. There's only so much that a candidate running down the ballot who has the same letter next to his name can do in that situation. Look, we only have a few minutes here, although I could talk for hours about this with both of you. But I guess what I'm really curious as we wrap up here, and I want to hear from both of you, Jason, I want to start with you as the former executive director of the Michigan Republican Party. What happens next? Is there a double downing of like, nope, we got to just continue far right conservatives. It just wasn't our year. You know, okay, it was a shellacking. Or is there actually going to be some kind of introspection, some kind of, you know, group get together where y'all hold hands and talk about what needs to happen next? Well, there's a a lot of recriminations and machinations going on 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 where we go from here. I, I think, you know, one thing that for your listeners to understand is in February, delegates of the Republican Party will gather to choose the next chairman. And there's already, you know, people starting to uh, plant their flag on a potential run. And, you know, it's a very MAGA crowd. These are people that got elected in August in the pri- on the primary ballot who will determine who the new chairman is. Um, and is that chairman going to be someone like Matt DiPerno, who demonstrated he can raise no money and spent his entire primary burning all the donors to the ground? Um, you know, the, the balance that you have to have in the party to be successful is a detente or a cooperation between the, the MAGA grassroots and the donors who are not necessarily MAGA or motivated by that have other interests. If you don't have them both working together, we fail. And that's, I think, what you saw happen here today. So if the delegates choose someone like a Matthew DiPerno who can't raise money, they're going to have no money and the party is going to be completely irrelevant. Tim Alberta, as I said, you may know Republicans better than they know themselves. Is there going to be some deep soul searching? You know, listen, I think for the first time in six years, there is a real question about whose Republican Party it is. Um, Not only did Donald Trump and his cast of uh, candidates lose in a humiliating fashion uh, in many cases on Tuesday night. But that was juxtaposed against the one real triumph for the Republican Party, which came in the state of Florida, where Governor Ron DeSantis was reelected by uh, historic margins. Uh, and, And you just can't overstate the degree to which the Republican donor class nationally is now jumping ship from Trump. And and I had one of the smartest Republicans in the country tell me the other day, said, listen, if DeSantis wants to run, there's $250 million in a super PAC for him tomorrow mm. if he wants to run. And I don't think that's exaggerated. In fact, I think it might even be understated. Uh, you, you, you cannot, uh, I think, appreciate fully just how many Republican donors have sort of now assessed the landscape of the last six years and seen that Republicans under Trump's watch, again, Trump won the presidency without a majority of the popular vote. He squeaked by by 77,744 votes in three states combined and then promptly lost the House, then lost the Senate, then lost the presidency by 7 million votes. And then on Tuesday night, he basically sabotaged the party again. And so I do think that 
if not in the Republican base, where Trump is still very popular, at least in the sort of center-right universe, and particularly with the Republican donor class, you now have, I think, a real sense of urgency to try and move beyond Trump. But if Trump is going to get pushed off stage, he's going to have his sort of claws dragging across that stage because he's already made clear that he will wage war on Ron DeSantis or anybody else who wants to try and take him out. And meantime, we're all now waiting for next Tuesday and what he might do. That is Tim Alberta, staff writer at The Atlantic, author of American Carnage on the front lines of the Republican Civil War and the rise of President Trump. Jason Rowe, also here of Rowe Strategic and former executive director of the Michigan Republican Party. Thanks so much, you two. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Well, folks, it has been a ride, but election season for now at least is over. Mercifully, it has been a total pleasure to be able to spend this time with you every Friday. And beginning next week, we will continue It's Just Politics on Friday afternoons at 3.40 and in the evenings at 9.40. 20 minutes every week for you to get caught up on what's happening in Lansing and why. Subscribe to the It's Just Politics podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Until next week, I am Zoe Clark. April Bear is back in the chair on Monday. Thanks so much for listening.